some of you will know, we're doing um, a series on the Torah at the moment, which is the first five books of the Bible, which are really foundational for every theme that will ever come up in Scripture. The first five books of the Bible are really key. Um, they can feel like a little bit of a drag. Um, I've tried re- reading numbers again recently, and I just... I'm going to be completely honest. I was honest last time. It didn't, no one came and shouted at me afterwards, so I'll just be honest. I don't really like the book of Numbers. It's difficult, and it's not, very, it's, it's not easy to read. And uh, I think often the times we come to the Bible and we find a bit that's not easy to read, and we don't really know what to do with it. Um, so what we thought we'd do is we, we believe that there is massive amounts of treasure, massive amounts of beauty hidden, uh, not even that well hidden, to be honest, in the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, your favorite five books. Um, so we're spending ten weeks going through these books. Um, now, that feels like a long time except when you consider they're all very long and it's two weeks per book. So today we're doing uh, Exodus 1 to 19. Woohoo! Uh, not much happens in Exodus 1 to 19, so it'll be an easy ride. Um, but let's get cracking. Um, I love how much we've already focused in this service today on the freedom that God offers and the, re- the, the, the release from captivity that God offers and that Jesus um, offers us. And that's so key. Um, and really, that story finds its root in the bit of scripture that we're looking at today. There is so much of a foundation of the biblical story, of who Jesus is, of what redemption is, of what salvation is. Yeah, it's so much rooted in Exodus, um, in, the, in the story of the Exodus, of the people of Israel um, leaving slavery in the land of Egypt. And I just think that's really cool. Like, we think of these five books as the book of the Lord. Sometimes they're called the book of the law. And that's true. There's lots of God giving instruction to his people. But then the danger is that we think, oh, the kind of the start of the Bible is the law, and then God kind of gets nice towards the end of the Bible and loosens up a little and says, oh, I'll let your hair down, it's okay. And that's actually not the case at all. This story of the people of Israel doesn't begin with a list of laws. And it doesn't begin with a set of to-dos. It begins with God showing what kind of a God he is to a people who are in captivity and under oppression and saying, I'm going to free you regardless. I'm just going to show my love to you without you doing anything for it, without you earning it in any way. You're just a people, you need help, and I'm going to rescue you, I'm going to bring you out, I'm going to set you free. And that's before they do anything. Isn't that cool? So let's get to work. Um, now, uh, we've so far, we've done the book of Genesis. Um, I say we've done the book of Genesis. I mean, you never do the book of Genesis, like there's more. Um, but we looked at how the first 11 chapters are really uh, the story of the, st- of the kind of the story of the world. It's the story of everyone um, and how we all um, are part of this kind of world that is messed up and broken. And the more time goes on, the more ways we find um, of ruining the world and of ruining what God uh, is doing. And God doesn't... Um, reset. He doesn't completely destroy us. He finds ways of redemption and renewal, even there. And then in chapter 12, um, you kind of get this zoom in as the story goes from being about the whole world to being about one guy. And Abraham gets the promise from God, doesn't he? Um, And the promise is, through you, Abraham, and through your family, I'm going to bless and redeem and make new the whole world. It's a great promise. So you get this very specific people, but already a hint that it's not just going to be about Abraham's family. Um, 
it's going to be, a, there's a wider purpose that God is doing. Are you all with me so far? The wider purpose is to bring all things to how they were originally intended to be, in harmony with God and in harmony with each other, um, with no brokenness or slavery or pain or death or whatever. Um, and so you get the story of Abraham's family, don't you? So Abraham and then... <laughs> Abraham and then Sarah, yeah, fair play. Um, and then Isaac, that's right, and then... Jacob, that's right, and all these stories are flawless and just go without any kind of um, human idiocy or anything like that. They're just really great guys who are easy to get along with, particularly Jacob. Um, and then Jacob has 12 sons, and one of them is called... Hey, you picked the right one. That's good. Um, and then uh, we spend a lot of Genesis looking at the story of Joseph, who, of course, and there's, this is a, there's a reason why we're talking about this just briefly, is sold by his brothers into what? Where? Egypt. So Joseph, one of the kind of descendants of Abraham, who's we're hoping is going to redeem the world, is sold into slavery in Egypt. So he's in exile, he's away from home. And the question comes, what is God doing about it? And for ages, it doesn't look like God is doing anything about it. Not to Joseph, anyway. Do you remember he's in Potiphar's house for a while, and then he's in prison for ages, and then he does some cool stuff, and then they forget about him. Do you remember this? You all remember this. That's good. Um, but then what happens is Pharaoh gets a dream, doesn't he? And Pharaoh ends up saying, I need someone to help me, and the guy who's with Joseph in prison remembers, and Joseph gets to come out of prison and help Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is so amazed and so taken that, that Joseph becomes like the prime minister of Egypt and leads the people through a time of great pain and um, leads them through successfully. Isn't that cool? So you get this impression that God uses the bad decision of his brothers and their evil, their putting him into slavery. And even the system of slavery itself gets turned around and used by God to bring redemption to a nation. Are you following? That's cool, isn't it? And so we come into Exodus with that in mind. Someone has been in slavery in Egypt. It looks like they've been forgotten about by God. And God has turned the situation around and brought massive redemption and massive healing. The way Joseph puts it to his brothers is like this. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Now, do you remember those words evil and good coming up before in the book of Genesis? There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what we see all the time is people do evil, people mess things up, and God finds a way of bringing good out of it. And that's where the book of Genesis gets us. So we're now there. We're in Egypt. Great. You there? You just had a, that's all we needed to do for the last two weeks, really, isn't it? Done. Um, okay. So now we're in Exodus, and we're in Exodus chapter 1. Good. Um, how many of you have a Bible that you can look at? If you do have a Bible that you can look at, it may help you for those of you who know it off by heart, go for it. Um, good. I'm going to go from Exodus chapter 1. And the way we're just going to try and work through this story, uh, which is going to be a challenge in itself. Um, and then I'll comment and try and make myself sound clever every now and then. So Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The total number of people born to Jacob was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt, and then Joseph died and all his brothers and that whole generation. 
So we're kind of wiping the slate clean at the beginning of Exodus 1. They, those guys, that story is done. So there's kind of a link back to Genesis. It's interesting, isn't it? Exodus, start, Exodus starts by linking back to Genesis, as in we're carrying on that story, but we're going to do it with some new characters. Those guys, they're dead. Don't worry about them. They're gone. Um, uh, but then we get the verse 7. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. It's a great word to use. They multiplied and grew exceedingly in number. Um, you can guess what that means. So the land was filled with them. What does that remind you of? Rabbits. <laughs> yeah, okay. They're, they're actually, their breeding habits are going to come up again in this chapter, which is great. Um, yeah, they've, they haven't got much to do, I suppose, as a part of, uh, part of it. Well, they've found plenty to do. Um, but um, what does that work? That, 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 there's phraseology there. Do you remember? Fruitful and multiply. What does that remind you of? Genesis. That's right. In chapter 1, God blesses people, creation that he has made, and says, be fruitful and multiply and grow exceedingly on the earth. Um, and so they do that. They're just being obedient to God, um, and they're doing it very well. So the land was filled with them. So again, it's, there's a harking back to the promise of Genesis. It's like the promise of Genesis of the people of God growing strong and growing in number and growing to be a blessing to the world. It's like it's all happening, and it begins with great hope. But like in Genesis, that also begins with great hope and then goes terribly wrong terribly quickly. So does Exodus. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. That kind of word shrewd reminds me of the word crafty. Huh, well, that was a good huh. That was a, that was a good knowing huh there. Um, it's like the serpent enters the scene in Genesis 3. It's more crafty and deals craftily with humanity. Uh, this Pharaoh is going to deal shrewdly with the people. Or they will increase and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. In other words, he's afraid that a certain set of things are going to happen. He's afraid that if they don't oppress the people of Israel, they're going to increase. They're going to fight against Egypt and escape from the land. Increase, fight against Egypt, and escape from the land. Isn't it ironic? <laughs> he's what? He oppresses the people because he's worried. Are you getting this? That if he doesn't oppress them, they're going to fight against Egypt, increase in number, and escape from the land. And what happens in the book of Exodus? And it all happens because he oppresses them. That's the irony of fear. <laughs> and the irony of a politics of fear, I think, as well. Um, is so much, so much of the bad decisions we make in life and so much of the bad political decisions um, our countries make and the bad business decisions our businesses make and the bad relational decisions that we all make are decisions that are based on fear. Just don't, don't do anything based on fear. Okay, now. Uh, so therefore they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramesses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, so now we're getting the first thing Pharaoh was worried about was that they would increase, yeah. Uh, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So apparently there's something about stress that just helped, I don't know. Um, 
It's like, take your mind off it or something. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, <laughs> um, and they became ruthless with them. And then you get this awful bit where the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, it's really interesting, there's these midwives in the story. They don't, uh, they, you, I don't think you would read the story expecting midwives to be a key character, but they are, and that's really cool, isn't it? Um, said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra, Shipra, and the other Pua. Now, it even gives their names. Pharaoh doesn't even get a name. Pharaoh's just called King Pharaoh, whatever. Um, but uh, these guys get a name. Um, Shipra, Shipra and Pua. When you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, she shall live. In other words, the Pharaoh is planning to wipe out the Jewish people slowly and surely by killing all their boys. Uh, and so they go for the babies and the midwives, and Pharaoh thinks that his influence will be enough uh, to, to get rid of the people of Israel. So the, but uh, the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, I'm mainly reading this bit for the banter, by the way, uh, and said to them, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, <laughs> you can imagine them coming into this meeting like, oh gosh, Pharaoh's found out what we've done. Our heads are for the block. Like, this is game over. We're going to have to come up with a really, really good excuse about why we've been letting these little boys live and not killing them. And you can imagine they'd be really scared in that situation. But they don't seem particularly scared. They said to Pharaoh, oh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. And these women are just, they're too quick. We get there. We can't do anything about it. And it is out. Uh, there's nothing we can do. And they're already having an next one by the time we get there anyway. So, um, uh, uh, yeah, nothing we can do. Sorry. And then there's this lovely detail. So God dealt, dwelt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Cool, huh? That people do bad and evil, and God turns it around and does good. Good to the midwives who fear him, and good to the people who are being oppressed. Isn't that cool? It's just such a little beautiful picture of God turning a disgusting and evil situation around for good. What's also cool, just as a little aside, is the enormous role of women in these first couple of chapters of Exodus. And again, I don't think if they weren't in the story, we wouldn't be surprised. If they just weren't included, like people, readers of an ancient text like this wouldn't be surprised if women weren't a key role. But then you get these two midwives who were named, and it explicitly said, so God gave them families of their own because of what they did. And Pharaoh's plan is thwarted by a couple of, uh, a couple of these young women midwives. I don't know if they were young. Yep these women midwives. But then what happens next is a story also where a, a, a girl saves the day completely. Um, so a woman has a baby um, and she hid him for three months and she couldn't hide him any longer. Um, and Pharaoh had said by this stage to anyone in Egypt, if you see a young boy, basically put it in the river. Just kill it, put it in the river. Um, so this woman's worried because, you know, you can hide a baby for a little while. I don't know how actually, it makes so much noise. But um, uh, maybe disguise it as a girl or something. But she, um, she's getting to the stage where that's, that's getting more and more tricky. And so she has to obey Pharaoh in some way. So she's like, okay, I'll put him in the river. I'll put him in the river in a boat. So she puts him in a little papyrus boat um, and sets him off down the river. Um, and he's, um, 
his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Um, what, it's such an awful moment in itself. Like it's, you know, it's kind of, it's cool that she puts him in a boat, but it's also the, the end of the day for this little baby. And then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. Now, <laughs> she recognizes it as one of the Hebrew babies, okay? This is the daughter of Pharaoh. So who's the one person in the country you'd most expect <laughs> to be like, I'm going to do what my dad says? Well, actually, maybe not a daughter of Pharaoh. Maybe, <laughs> maybe she's a teenager, <laughs> and uh, she just like, it's like, oh, I'm going to show dad. Um, but this daughter of Pharaoh, the, very, the last person that you would expect to take this baby in, ends up taking him in. And then you get this great situation where, again, is this kind of parody where, where what Pharaoh said to try and kill the babies was put them in the river. And then this baby was put in the river and he ends up being taken into Pharaoh's house, fed at Pharaoh's table, raised in Pharaoh's, like, in Pharaoh's education system and paid for by Pharaoh's pocket. So it's like the ultimate kind of sly dig, isn't it, back at Pharaoh where he does something for evil and God behind the scenes does something for good and brings uh, Moses um, and, and she named him Moses. Um, do you get that? Who, who named Moses? Pharaoh's daughter. Isn't that so cool? Pharaoh, Moses, like the key character in the Old Testament, his name is an Egyptian name given by a foreign woman. And God never changes it. Like God changes Abraham's name. God gives Jacob a new name. You'd expect him to be like, oh, we're going to have to upgrade your name, Moses, because it's pagan. But that's who Moses is. Um, anyway, let's look a little bit more about Moses' early life, and then we're going to crack on. What, what, this is key to the story. That's why I'm doing it. <clears throat> um, if we don't get to the end, the long and the short of it is the Israelites escape from Egypt. Sorry. Uh, just, <laughs> just in case. Um, then we get this story about Moses growing up and the development of this guy because we're meeting Moses now for the first time and he's going to be with us through the whole rest of the Torah. It's not his story, um, it's God's story and the people of Israel's story, but he's going to be one of the key characters in it. So the point that these books are called the books of Moses. So it's worth us just spending a little bit of time thinking about the kind of guy he is. Um, so he grows up, he's in Pharaoh's house, he's raised by um, Pharaoh's family, um, uh, and also with the influence of his parents who are Hebrews, so he knows his background. Um, one day after Moses had grown up, I'm in 2 verse 11 if you're following, um, he went out to his people and saw their forced labor. There's this kind of growing up moment where he comes to terms with what's really going on in the world. You know when you have that moment where you uh, kind of take a look at things for yourself for the first time, and you're like, whew, this world's pretty cray-cray. Um, Moses has that moment here. Um, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his kinsfolk. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And then kind of walked off like... Thinks he's gotten away with it. When he went out the next day... Um, I wouldn't go out the next day if, if that happened to the day before. I'd be like, I'm just going to take a few days out. <laughs> I'm going to let myself calm down. I want to be sure that's not going to happen again. But he goes out the next day. Maybe he's kind of hungry for justice. He wants to do something. Um, this time he sees two Hebrews fighting, so two of his own people. And he said to the one who was in the wrong, why do you strike your fellow Hebrew? 
And the guy answered, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Interestingly, that's a phrase Jesus picks up. Do you remember? When a guy comes to him and he says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus says, who made me a ruler and a judge over you? I'm going to drop that in there. I think Jesus was doing something. I don't know what. Okay. Uh, but why do you strike your fellow Hebrew? Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. So now Moses is in exile. Has anyone ever been in exile before in this story? Only everyone, <laughs> like Adam and Eve, <laughs> exiled from the Garden of Eden. Cain, exiled after the death of his brother. The people after Babel, exiled into all the earth. Um, and, and we expect this to be kind of a regathering, but Moses is now exiled as well. Um, and his people are all in exile at the moment, stuck in Egypt. So there's a lot of exile happening. Exile seems to be something that's key for the people of Israel, and that theme doesn't go away um, through the whole story. Or through our story, there's a kind of sense for all of us where we're not home, isn't there? Um, so where uh, Moses is now in exile. And then there's another situation that Moses has to intervene in. Um, so there's uh, a Midian priest has some daughters and they come to draw water for their flock. Um, but some shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their defense and watered their flock. Now, here's what we've got. We've got three situations where Moses has intervened so far. Okay, we're just going to do a little quiz. In the first one, who was the uh, victim and who was the aggressor? Who was the aggressor? Sorry? Uh, sorry, I, as in, who, in the situation that he intervened in, there's an aggressor and a victim. Who's the aggressor? An Egyptian. Okay, who was the victim? His own people. Now, you expect that, don't you? You expect the, the story to be that way around. In the second story that he intervenes in, who is the aggressor? An Israelite. And who is the victim? An Israelite. Okay. So now it's a slightly different situation where the aggressor um, is, is one of his own people. And he has to stand up against one of his own people. As uh, the great Dumbledore once said, it's one thing to stand up against your enemies. It's quite another um, to stand up to your friends. Um, and I think Dumbledore said that because of this story. Um, but then the third story where Moses engages, who is the aggressor? Some shepherds, right? They're, they're Midianite shepherds, okay? So they're a foreigner. Who's the victim? Yeah, Midianite women. And there's this thing where Moses shows in these three stories, he learns something about the nature of justice, that justice doesn't have a hometown like a home nation, but it's for everyone, right? Do you see that? And I think that's really important for Moses to be a great leader of the people of Israel and to lead them out, is he has to learn, I'm not just here for them. I'm here for justice. I'm here for peace. I'm here for well wellness for people who are oppressed wherever they come from. It's also a little hint about the way ahead for this story, that though this story is going to be rescue for the people of Israel, it's wider than that. It's about more than that. It's more open than that. This is for everyone. And so before the people of Israel get set free at all, we've got the story of Moses intervening on behalf of these Midianite women. It goes well for Moses. He gets a wife out of it. Um, so that's a good day's work itself. Um, and uh, one of those girls, he, he marries, and then he lives in this land for 40 years. Now, up to this point, 
God hasn't seemed to do very much. Now, we can see it. There's kind of this irony. Is it irony in the text where we can see something and they can't? What's that called? Dramatic irony. And there's this dramatic irony in the text where we can see God moving. But if you're living in Israel, uh, in Egypt, as an Israelite at this point in time, do you see God having done much? So there's this sense that you're in slavery. You've got these promises from hundreds of years ago, but nothing looks like it's happening. Nothing. They don't see Moses as this expectant hope. One day he'll come and bring us out. They don't see that. They don't see anything that God is doing. But the end of chapter 2 is so key because the end of chapter 2 says this. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. And out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites And God took notice of them. Isn't that cool? There's this kind of energy there in the text. You're like, oh, something's going to happen. Like, it's not like God is actually doing nothing. It's not like he's not active. He does see. He is aware. He is attentive and he does care. Isn't that cool? They don't see it yet, but it's there in the text. So then you kind of get the feeling, great. What's God going to do? What's God going to do to bring out this people from, from the land of slavery? What's God going to do to rescue them from all the oppression that they're under? And then we get to chapter 3. Here's what God is going to do. God is going to show up to an 80-year-old political uh, refugee with an Egyptian name, raised in Egyptian privilege, married to a non-Jew, father-in-law is a pagan priest. He's not a public speaker. He's a murderer. He's rejected by his own people. Um, And like I said, he's 80, which is a great starting age for any ministry. God thinks, how am I going to do it? That guy that cool and we kind of find that the things that seem to disqualify Moses from ministry actually really equip him for the role that God's going to do so Moses is out minding his own business he also doesn't know how the story is going to go he thinks he's found his lot he thinks I'll survive a few more years as a shepherd my sons will then succeed me and that's game over for me that's it he doesn't he's written off his future but he's wandering through he's got these sheep he's wandering um, just so happens to wander past the mountain of God which is a great place to go um if, if you want something to happen. But, uh, and then <laughs> he sees... Our problem with these texts so often is that we know the story, isn't it? Um, so we don't see it as weird. <laughs> he sees a burning bush. All of you have read this before, so none of you find that strange. That's strange. God appears to him in a burning bush. Now, it's not like there's scriptural precedent for that or that it's fulfilling any prophecy, so God had to be in a bush because of whatever. God just chose a bush. None of you are surprised. <laughs> That's surprising to me. I love that. It's like God found the most ordinary possible thing to show up in, to show up to the most ordinary possible guy. Well, actually, Moses isn't that ordinary, but you know what I mean. Um, anyway, God shows up in a burning bush. He can show up in whatever he likes. I love the fact that it says that the bush was burning, um, was, was, is on fire, but it's not burned up. It's burning, but it's not consumed. I love that. I love that that's what the presence of God is. It sets something on fire without destroying it. And I think that there's like a little picture there of what God wants to do in the midst of the people of Israel for them to be burning, but not consumed, not burnt up by it, but, but 
inhabited by the glory of God. Is that cool? I think that's his will for us as well, that he would be burning, um, but not consumed. Um, Not destroyed by the presence of God, but set on fire by it nonetheless. So um, Moses is surprised, and that's what catches his eye about the bush. Uh, So he goes, and he has this amazing conversation with God. Chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Exodus look at this incredible conversation uh, between Moses and God, where God says to Moses, we looked at it a couple of times already this morning, I'm going to send you, Moses, to bring my people out of Egypt. Um, And there's this amazing conversation uh, where God reveals his name um, to Moses. It's one of the fullest um, self revelations of God in the Old Testament and another one is coming later on in Exodus that we'll see next week it's really cool Um, and God says I am who I am Um, and that the word is linked to his name but it's not just saying I mean like a stapler is a stapler isn't it it doesn't make it worthy of worship it's not God saying like I am something so da da but rather what am I and he locates his identity who he is in the rescue of his people There's this kind of sense that God is saying, I am faithful. I am a redeemer. I am come to rescue. We're doing this way too quick um, because I'm very behind. So there's this amazing uh, conversation between Moses and God. And you know the story. Moses finds all the reason why it's a terrible idea. And God eventually says, shut up and get on with it. Um, We're going back to Egypt. Come along. Um, And that's how we move on from there. Are you with me so far? Great. So Moses goes back to Egypt, um, rallies the people of Israel, says, hey, guys, I'm back to rescue you. Look, my staff can be, my staff can be a snake. <laughs> and his staff becomes a snake. Uh, he picks it up. That was with no introduction at all, so that sounds strange. But um, uh, it's one of the things that God told him would be a sign. And then Pharaoh, uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh, doesn't he? And what happens? Can you remember? Does it get better or does it get worse? It gets worse. How many times have you found that when God gets involved in your life, sometimes it gets worse first? Yeah, anyone? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> from the back. Um, it gets worse. It gets way worse. Um, in fact, uh, Pharaoh is like, ah, I know what's the problem with you. You guys are just lazy because all slaves are lazy, aren't they? Yeah, that's such a ridiculous thing to say. So um, he, he makes it even more bitter for the people. He says, ah, oh, you've made bricks, but now I'm going to make you make bricks without straw. It gets worse. And, and Moses gets really frustrated with God. And then we get this amazing speech in chapter 6. There you go. We just skipped a couple of chapters nice and fast. Um, where, where God comes and reiterates the promise to Moses in chapter 6. And he says in, in chapter 6, um, let's just read from verse 2. God also spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but not by my name, the Lord. In other words, in this moment, you're going to get a fuller picture of who I am, of what it means for me to be God. What does it mean for me to be your God? I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they resided as aliens. I've heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are holding as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. So say to the Israelites, and he's going to strengthen the Israelites with the speech, I am the Lord, and I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you. It's like one of the first moments where this word comes up, where the word redeem comes up. It's once in Genesis, and then from here on out, redeem, redeem, redeem comes up all the time. Um, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. 
Those acts of judgment we're going to spend a little time on in just a moment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You will know that I'm the Lord your God who's freed you from the burden of the Egyptians and I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So what God does is he says, hey, hey, Moses, remember the story. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, I gave them a covenant. I gave them a promise. I'm not forgetting it. I'm going to bring you out and rescue you now. And in the future, I'm going to bring you into the land. You see, there's the past, present and the future in this speech. It's just cool. Now, these mighty acts of judgment that God talks about. See, rescue for God involves two things in this story. It involves really good news for the Israelites, and it involves really bad news, really tough news for the Egyptians, doesn't it? And there's no getting away from that. This isn't a nice kind of fairy story story. There's mighty acts of judgment. And in any case where God redeems and rescues, that's always the case. Because there's always someone who doesn't want the situation to change. So where there's an act of injustice and you set someone free from that act of injustice, you're implicitly making life slightly more annoying for the person who had them before, aren't you? Does that make sense? There's a, there's a, so in anything that we do, there's always judgment and mercy. They go together. So we're going to look at some of those acts of judgment which come in the form of these ten plagues. Du, 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 du. Um, some of them are funny and some of them are just flipping awful. Um, and God says uh, to Moses, I'm going to send these ten um, acts of judgment and on, on Pharaoh and his household, and I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. I just dropped the hardened Pharaoh's heart bomb on you. Um, I really hope I have a little bit of time to talk about that in a few minutes, but we'll see. Um, basically, don't try and oversimplify the hardening of the heart. It's easy to, for people to be like, oh, Mo- Pharaoh hardened his own heart first. Um, and avoid the fact that before Pharaoh hardened his heart, God said that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So what, who's in charge here? Anyway, oh, that was so unhelpful, wasn't it? Sorry. <laughs> anyway, um, you get these plagues. Okay, let's just look at a couple of them. The first plague is where the Nile is turned to blood. Okay, and, God, and Fa- Moses goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. If you don't let my people go, the Nile will be turned to blood and all the water in Egypt turned to blood. Um, and so it is. Then the second plague is the plague of frogs. Frogs appearing everywhere in Egypt, right? Now, here's the cool thing about this. Why frogs? Why the Nile? Now, let's, this is cool, okay? You ready? You ready for something really cool? The god of the Nile was called the god Happy. <laughs> H-A-P-I. Happy. Uh, and the Egyptians worshipped the god of the Nile. Every, once a year, it flooded and flooded this beautiful fertile water all over the soil around the Nile, and so they could grow their crops. And they believed that the Nile was the bringer of life to the whole of Egypt. How had Pharaoh used the Nile in this story? To kill the Israelite babies. So Pharaohs used something that they believed to bring life, to bring death. And God's first act of judgment is on that. Isn't that interesting? Let's look at the second one. The second one is the frogs. The frogs come up. Now, the the Egyptians had this god who was depicted as a frog who was called Heket. I've already said Heket. 
Hecate sounds like a kind of cuss, doesn't it? Oh, Hecate. Uh, uh, now, Hecate was particularly involved in the latter stages of pregnancy, a.k.a. birth. She was kind of like the midwife god. How has Pharaoh used midwives in this story? Do you get it? God is using these signs. It's not just like, God can do frogs. Whoa, God can do frogs, man. (laughs) God is making a point to the people of Egypt, isn't he? He's destroying their system of power and the things that they have used to oppress and kill. He's turning upside down and saying, no, no. Do you get it? How cool is that? That these are judgments on the gods of Egypt. And actually it talks about it in that. And now the, the, Israel, the Egyptians can do water and they can do frogs. They turn the water into blood too and they, turn frog, they make frogs too. Which is of course kind of counterintuitive anyway because now they've got more frogs. But um, when it comes to the third plague, the plague of gnats, there's this great moment where the Egyptian sorcerers try and produce gnats as well to show our gods can do gnats too. Uh, and they can't. And they say, this man, this surely is the finger of God. Um, there's this great, uh, one of the commentators I read said, the cultic priests and magicians who thought they could control the sun and the Nile discovered that they could not even produce a louse. Cool, huh? So there's kind of, there's this kind of comedy going through uh, the story as well. Um, but it gets worse and worse and worse. The plagues get more and more and more severe. Um, and so let's assume that we've had nine plagues. Are you ready to assume that we've had nine plagues and there's hail and there's locusts and there's the death of all the livestock and there's darkness and it's awful. And then the narrative changes slightly as you get the promise of the last and final plague, which is the death of the firstborn of Egypt. What, what did Pharaoh do with the firstborn? So he killed the sons of Israel, didn't he? And now God says, I'm going to give retributive justice, basically. I'm going to kill your sons. Now, listen, is this a nice story? No. And you shouldn't read it and just try and resolve it nice and neatly. Oh, it was justice. Because for a lot of these Egyptian kids, they'd never done anything wrong, had they? Um, And yet they get the judgment of God. And we should look at that and think, hey, that does seem unfair. Like, it's okay to read the Bible and get angry at God. Um, It's okay to look at life and get angry with God. Um, God doesn't want us to too quickly resolve that, I don't think. But there's this amazing thing, isn't there, where the last plague, uh, the Israelites are told, this is going to be when you leave Egypt. And so this last and greatest plague is going to be when the people leave Egypt. And so the narrative is kind of chopped up, where the last nine plagues have kind of come plague Plague, 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 plague. Now we get the Passover instituted. Uh, The Passover is the meal that the Israelites celebrated on the night before they left Egypt. And it was a meal that they had to eat quickly with their feet, uh, with their feet ready, with their shoes on, uh, belt tied, like stuff on their back, ready to go, because it's the meal they eat before they leave um, the land of Egypt. Are you with me? Now, we get the loads of detailed instructions about the Passover. So that's what's weird to me. Is the way I would expect the narrative to go is they have a quick meal, they leave, then they get out of Egypt, and then Moses is like, hey, guys, in future years, let's have the Passover like this. And then the instructions for the Passover to come. Does that make sense? But in actual fact, what happens is they haven't left yet, 
They haven't even had the night yet. And Moses sits them all down and gives them instructions about this perpetual ordinance that they're going to have this meal every year to celebrate uh, uh, leaving Egypt. They haven't even left yet. Isn't that strange? Does that seem strange to you? Just nod, if you, even if you don't. Uh, that's fine. Um, but, uh, so the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, I'm in chapter 12, this month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the 10th of this month, they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it's to join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in on proportion to the number of people who eat it. And then you're supposed to take some of the blood of the lamb that's killed and put it on the lintel of the houses. So like on the frame, the door frame, and then eat the lamb. So the idea is that when you, when you come into your house that evening, you've put the blood of the lamb on your doorpost, so you're going through the blood. Does that make sense? Now, that was actually a symbol for covenant making in the ancient world. You would cut an animal and then walk between the pieces as a sign of making a covenant. So God is actually involving covenant in this meal. It's just really weird and messy for your doorframe. Um, but uh, building that into this meal. So, uh, they, there's this, this covenant meal that's given, the Passover. And God says, if you've eaten the Passover and you're in a house with blood on its lintel, the destroying angel that's going to come and kill all the firstborn will pass over your house. It will see the blood on the doorpost and it will pass over your house and you won't be affected by the plague. Let's look ahead just a little bit. Chapter, uh, verse 43 of chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance for the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but any slave who has been purchased may eat of it after he's been circumcised. Now, stop, okay? We're not even out of Egypt yet. <laughs> but already, the Passover regulations are starting to include strange people in the Passover. Does that make sense? We're not even out of Egypt, and already Moses is saying, oh, uh, if there's a non-Israelite slave among you, they can get circumcised and share in this meal. Now, the non only Israelites came out, so wh what's the role of a non-Jewish slave got in the Passover? And then it goes on. Um, if an alien, verse 48, if an alien who resides with you, uh, which just means foreigner, not alien, um, though they'd be welcome, you know, if they want to, uh, I don't know how you'd circumcise an alien necessarily, but if an alien who resides with you wants to celebrate the Passover to the Lord, all his males shall be circumcised, then he may draw near to celebrate it. He shall be regarded as a native of the land, there will be one law for the native and for the alien who resides among you. Do you get that? That's explosive. So the people of Israel have just had the Passover meal. They're running away from the Egyptians who are chasing them through the wilderness. Um, and God stops them and says, by the way, guys, by the way, it's not just about you. This, this great meal, this great celebration of rescue is not limited to just you. Isn't that cool? There's a way for people 
to, to get involved, to say, hey, I want to be a part of that story. I want to be a part of that rescue story of God bringing people out of slavery, of God bringing us out of bondage and into a new place and into a new land and into a new freedom. And God says, hey, a foreigner can eat this meal if they commit themselves to God. There's a way in. Do you get the point? This is way wider. It's even wider than just rescuing the people of Israel. Um, now, the plague happens. The, the, um, it's just this awful moment. The, the firstborn of Egypt are killed. Uh, and, and God's people are cast out by the Egyptians. They say, just go, just go. Take what you want. Take our valuables. Take our gold. And just get out of the country. Because if you stay, we're all going to die. Um, and we've got enough funerals to organize. Thank you. So they, they get rushed out by Egypt. And they travel um, across the desert with this new meal. And this kind of sense that it's the beginning of a new year. It's the beginning of a new time. It's the beginning of a new um, life. It's a new day. Um, good. And they, they leave. Now, okay. And then they cross the Red Sea. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> um, let's do this. That becomes the core story of the rest of the Bible. This rescue from Egypt isn't just, hey, it's cool that something this happened. It becomes the story that defines the rest of the Bible. Over and over and over again, you will see the phrase, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Or remember, you were slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, in other words, the whole rest of the story is hinged on this moment. And I love that. I love that the whole story of the Bible isn't hinged on some even some super spiritual but not really earthly moment. Does that make sense? It's hinged on this genuine release of genuine slaves from genuine oppression, out of a genuinely physical land and a genuinely bad king into a genuinely free life. Isn't that cool? That's the grounding of scripture. That's the story um, that, that, we're, that we're looking at today. Um, <laughs> the, what, a quote in a book that I read said this, No story um, has been more influential in shaping the inner landscape of liberty teaching successive generations that oppression is not meritable, that it, it, sorry, is not inevitable, that it is not woven into the fabric of history. There can be another place, another kind of society, a different way of living. What happened once, what happened to this people, can happen again for those who have faith in the God who had faith in humankind. He says the God of freedom calls us to be free. That's the story here in Exodus. The God of freedom calls his people to be free. And it's no accident that this thread continues through the whole rest of Scripture. And then in the New Testament, <laughs> Jesus' birth. Do you remember the Jesus' birth story in Matthew? When there's a character called Herod. And what does Herod do when he hears that there's a new king? He kills all the firstborn, all the babies, doesn't he, under two? All the male babies. And you're supposed to go... Oh, what's happening here? 
It's no accident. It's no accident that Jesus and his young family go to Egypt to flee. And they are exiles in Egypt. And then Jesus comes back from Egypt and it says, out of Egypt I've called my son. It's no accident. It's no accident that when there's a story of Jesus and his mates going up a mountain and there's this moment where like Jesus shines with glory and there's this cloud and Jesus appears talking with Moses and Elijah. Do you remember this? And what are they talking about? They're talking about his departure or the Greek word is his exodus. They're talking about Jesus's exodus, which he is about to accomplish In Jerusalem, it's no accident that that's where the story goes. And it's no accident that the last meal Jesus has in his life (laughs) is the Passover meal with his mates, where he takes the cup (laughs) and he says, not lamb's blood now, but my blood. Not a broken lamb's body, but my body will be broken for you to lead you out of slavery out of slavery, to sin, to sickness, to death, to Satan, and into a new life, into a free life. It's Jesus saying, I will free you. I will deliver you. I will redeem you, and I will take you as my people. And so the great thing about this story is that all of us are invited into it. As followers of Jesus, all of us get to come and eat at the table of the Passover, because the firstborn son (laughs) has died. Do you see? I mean, all of you knew that already, anyway. But the firstborn son has died so that the people can walk into freedom. Great. I think let's leave it there. Um, I got most of the way there, Nigel. Yeah. Uh, Next week, Nigel's going to do the whole rest of the book of Exodus, (laughs) which isn't a story so much. So it's going to be, well, it is a story, but it's a bit trickier. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. Sorry? Yeah, let's pray. Oh, and sing. Cool. Yeah. Can we sing? Good. Sorry, Luke. We're going to sing. Yeah, let's pray. Definitely. Um, Oh, Lord, thank you that you love to set slaves free. Thank you that when we're in those moments in our lives where it just feels like you don't see, like, is God even watching? Is God doing anything? You are cooking up a plan to redeem and to bring us to freedom. And Lord, thank you that in human history, (laughs) you cooked up a plan to bring us to freedom. Lord, thank you that it was your son. Lord, that's such a ridiculously generous thing for you to give your own life, your own son's life, for us to walk free. So Lord, we pray for a a real sense of how this meets our lives, how this meets our world at the moment. We live in a world where so many need to be set free. And so we pray for your freedom. We pray for you to bring them out. But Lord, we also live in a world where we all need to be set free. And where we all walk around with things that are holding us. And we pray for your freedom, like we sung earlier, your deliverance, your rescue, your salvation. Lord, we pray that this genuinely would be a freedom and a rescue that the whole world can join in with. Thank you that it's always bigger than us. Thank you that it was bigger than Israel. Thank you that it's bigger 
than the crisis in our lives. It's for the whole world. You want to bring the whole world to freedom. So Lord, we pray that you do that. We say, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus.